Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. I'll be reading verses 9 through the first part of 23. This is the second scene in a larger narrative that we began looking at last Sunday. The larger narrative tells the story of God prompting or maybe even prodding the apostles to take the gospel of Jesus to Gentiles as Gentiles. That is, to take the gospel to Gentiles without asking them to become Jews. Last Sunday, we saw how God prepared Cornelius, a devout Roman centurion stationed in Caesarea, to receive this gospel from Peter. And this morning, we'll see how God prepared Peter to take this gospel to Cornelius. But as we come to listen to God's word, let's pray for God's help to understand what he says to us. Would you pray with me? Loving fathers, you have made us not to exist on bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Give us a hunger for your word, and in that food satisfy our daily need. Lord, open now our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what your spirit will say to us this day. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Acts 10, starting in verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, when, now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation. For I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you were looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, y'all can come up and join me. All right, all right. Come on. Good to see y'all. All right. All right, can, can y'all see this card? This is part of a wedding invitation. This has just some of the extra details that's needed on it. Now, there's something at the bottom of this card that's actually pretty important, right down here in this lower corner. 
Uh, it's a little too small maybe for you to see, so I'll, I'll read you what it says. It says, dressy casual. Do you know what that means? Yeah? Dress up casually. Dress up casually. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it, it, there's sort of a range of meaning there, but, but basically dressy casual is telling us how we are supposed to dress for this wedding. It, it means that Miss Jenny and most of the women are, are probably going to wear a nice dress, most of the men will wear a nice shirt and pants, probably a sports coat, maybe a tie, probably not a tie. You don't really have to wear a tie when it's dressy casual. Now, the people who sent this invitation, the, the bride and the groom, and usually their parents, they're the ones putting on this wedding, right? And so that means they get to decide how people dress for this wedding. You know, at, at some weddings, men have to wear tuxedos and the women have to wear a formal gown. Uh, at others, it's okay just to wear your swimsuit and flip-flops. You know, th th but that's really all up to the bride and the groom. It's their wedding and so it's their rules. Now, I think I would like to be welcomed as a guest at this wedding, uh, this dressy casual wedding. So what do you think? Should I show up? in cut-off jean shorts and a tank top? You, you sure? Because that sounds really comfortable. No? Okay, all right. So as their guest, you're saying I should dress according to their terms, right? Okay, all right. Well, you know, it's kind of like that with God, too. Because He's God, and we're not, He's the one who gets to tell people what they need to be near Him. And He says that people can only come near Him if they are holy. Which is another way to say, if, if God's greatness is seen in every part of their life, only with holiness can people see God. We can be close to Him only if God is honored in every part of our life. Now, a long time ago, God told his people that what they ate, the things that they ate, was part of their holiness. If they ate the things that God said were clean, that was sort of a special word for them, if they were clean, then that was obeying. That was part of the way that they showed God as God in their life. By eating the right things, they could come close to him. But if they ate things that were called, that God called unclean, then they were not honoring God with their whole life. It's like they were saying, I can come to you any way that I want. It would be like trying to come to a wedding dressed in dirty, torn up, stinky clothes. Nobody wants to see that. Nobody wants to smell that. So they had to learn how to approach God on his terms in the way that he said they had to be holy. But but when Jesus came, God changed the definition of holiness. You know, he still requires holiness for us to come near him. But he still says that he must be honored as God in our lives. But now that holiness is not defined by what you eat. It's defined by your relationship with Jesus. You and I, guys, you and I have to admit that we don't honor God in every part of our lives, do we? I don't. Do you? No, I don't think any of us do. 
But Jesus did live that way. He honored God with his whole life, and he died in the place of us sinners. Now, God promises to take unclean sinners like you and me and to make us clean when we simply receive Jesus as Lord and rest on him alone as our rescuer. God says that Jesus is your holiness. Covered by him, you are dressed in everything that you need to live forever in the presence of God. And that's why we call this good news. Do you believe it? All right, thanks guys, you can go back. Well, if you're not done so already, open your Bibles to that passage, uh, Acts chapter 10. As Sam said, this is the second scene in a uh, larger narrative. A narrative that is really a transition point in the overall book of Acts. A transition point where the gospel is now going to go forth beyond Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. And specifically going to go to the people who live at the end of the earth without requiring them to conform to the Jewish laws. The gospel is now going forth to Gentiles as Gentiles. And God is orchestrating the whole thing. God is, is prodding the apostles to, to do this. And so you'll remember last Sunday we, we saw the, the story of Cornelius as, as God uh, sent his angel to appear to him and to, and to uh, prompt him to send for Peter that he might hear this gospel. And we saw at the end of that first scene, we, we see Cornelius respond immediately to the angel's command by sending two servants and a devout soldier to Joppa to find Peter. And that is where we are really picking up the story this morning because we read in verse 9 that the next day as they were on their journey, as these, this, this, uh, these three men, these, three, these two servants and this soldier sent to, to get Peter, as they are on their journey approaching the city, Peter goes up on the housetop at the sixth hour to Pray. Now, the sixth hour is about noon. It's the, the middle of the day. The, the ancients divided the, the daylight hours into, to six hour, into 12 hours, with the, the sixth hour coming at, at midday. And so it's understandable that as Peter is praying, he becomes hungry. And we're told that he asks his hosts for something to eat. Can't just walk down to the fridge and, and grab a sandwich, and so he has to have them prepare something. And while they are preparing his meal, presumably he continues to pray. And as he is praying, we're told that he falls into a trance. Now, this is not ordinary sleep. Most of us have, have probably struggled with sleepiness while we were praying at some point in our lives. We may have even have fallen asleep while we were praying. That's not what's going on here. Peter is not simply struggling with, with sleepiness, but rather this is a God-induced trance. I, I think of the, the deep sleep that came upon Adam in the garden, or the deep sleep that came upon uh, Abraham as, he, as God appeared to him in the, the smoking fire pot that, that cut the covenant uh, with him. This is a, a God-induced sleep, and it's a sleep that is for the purpose of communication. God is going to reveal himself to Peter here. He is going to communicate with him in a vision. And we're told that in that vision, Peter sees the heavens opened. 
Again, you, you can imagine that in any number of ways, but, it, but it's clear that God is breaking through. He's, he's coming down out of his abode into Peter's presence, and, and he is letting down this great sheet. Again, something like a great sheet. We're not quite exactly sure what it is, but, but this great sheet is let down and it is filled with animals of every kind, including or maybe even exclusively animals that Peter would have regarded as unclean, animals that, that he knew he was not allowed to eat. This is the sheet that is let down from heaven and placed before him as he is praying at, at noon and, and awaiting his lunch. And the command comes with the sheet, rise Peter, kill and eat. So here is God, he's, he's revealing himself to Peter. He, he shows him this vision of this sheet with, with, filled with all types of animals, including unclean animals. And he tells Peter to rise, kill, and eat. And Peter responds, by no means. No, God, I'm not doing that. By no means. I have never eaten anything unclean. Peter had kept the, the kosher food laws all of his life. He had never eaten anything unclean. Clean. And so when the sheet comes down and he hears the command, he says, no, God, I can't do it by no means. And this scene is repeated three times. Three times the, uh, the, the sheet is let down. Three times the command is, is, is given. And three times Peter refuses. And then finally, the sheet is drawn up one last time into heaven, and Peter is left confused. We're, we're told in verse 17, Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius arrive at the gate. And so here is Peter, having seen this vision in a, in a state of utter confusion, wondering what this could possibly mean. And I think it's easy for us to, to give Peter a hard time. When God tells you to do something, you should probably do it. You know, when God gives you a command, you should probably obey. This is, this is Peter being stubborn. This is, this is Peter being his strong-willed self. This is, this is Peter uh, with his great arrogance and, and hubris refusing to submit to, to God's Plan that, that contrasts so uh, starkly with Cornelius, who, who heard the command of the angel and obeyed immediately. Immediately upon being told to send for Peter, he, he, he calls two of his servants and one of his soldiers, and he, and he sends them on their way. But Peter refuses. But despite that refusal, just despite his, his hesitancy, I don't think that we should see... <clears throat> Peter's response here is necessarily strong-willed or proud, but, but rather, I, I think we need to see it as, as perplexed and confused. He simply doesn't understand. He simply doesn't understand what this vision is all about. He's wondering what the vision might mean because he, he really doesn't have any categories to, to comprehend it. You see, this is not the same Peter who, who corrected Jesus when he first spoke of his cross and said, Jesus, may it never be. This is not the same Peter who, who denied Jesus on the night that he was betrayed. 
This is the Peter who was clothed with power on the day of Pentecost. This is the Peter who has been boldly proclaiming that gospel in Jerusalem despite multiple arrests. This is the the Peter who, when he was miraculously set free from prison, immediately went back into the temple courts and again began proclaiming the gospel in Jesus' name. And so I don't think that that Peter's refusal to comply here is because uh, he is is stiff-necked or or arrogant, but rather he is confused. And I think it's important for us to understand the source of his confusion if we are going to understand the lesson uh, that we are to uh, receive in this story. So let's look again at Peter's confusion. Why is Peter confused? Why is he perplexed by this command? Why is he wondering what what seems like a fairly straightforward command? Why is he wondering what it means? Well, he's confused because he's being commanded to break God's law. You see, that's what we have to keep in mind as we read this story. We're used to the food laws no longer being applicable. We're, we're used to eating bacon. We're used to eating pulled pork. We're, we're used to eating shrimp. We're, we're used to eating those things that the Old Testament called unclean. It doesn't really bother us anymore. But for Peter, these were not just cultural things. This was the very law of God. It was God who had told them not to eat that which was unclean. This law was given to to his ancestors, to his forefathers, at the same time as the commands about adultery and murder and, and bearing false witness. And so these are God's laws. And he's being asked to break God's laws. What would you think if, if that was the command? You see, you see, this isn't just about eating ants like Sam tried to get me to do last week. You know, this, that's not what this is about. This is not just about eating something weird. It's not just about eating something that you might consider gross or unusual. This is about breaking God's law. What does Peter think when he receives such a command? I believe he, he might have thought it was a test. He might have thought he was, he was being... Tested. You've seen those videos probably where, where people sort of leave a wallet full of cash on the ground and they go off in the corner and they set up their camera and they, and they watch what happens. They're, they're testing people's character. They're testing to see what they're going to do in a certain situation. And that's probably what Peter thinks is going on here. He's hungry and, and God's providing him with something unclean to eat and he's being put to the test. Will he give in? It's almost like the test that Jesus faced in the wilderness. Will he turn the the rocks, uh, the stones into bread just because he's hungry? Maybe Peter thinks he's being tested because he's actually feeling a little guilty. Do you remember where Peter's staying? Peter's in Joppa, right? But but whose house is he at? He's at the house of Simon the Tanner. And again, that, that may not mean anything to us, but what is a tanner's job? A tanner's job is to work with the skins of dead animals. His job means that he is perpetually unclean. And yet Peter is staying in his house. And so it's, it's possible that, that Peter is, is thinking about this and he's wondering if he's even being rebuked a little bit. As if God is saying to him, listen, if you're going to stay at a, at a tanner's house, 
You might as well go ahead and eat the unclean animals too. If you're not going to regard me, if you're not going to regard your holiness, if you're not going to guard your cleanliness, then you might as well go all the way. And Peter's saying, no, no, Lord, I do care about my holiness. I do care about my cleanliness. I will not rise and eat. I will not eat these things that you have, have called unclean. Now, obviously, we can't know for sure all that's going on in, in Peter's mind and in Peter's heart because, because Luke doesn't tell us. But, but we know this much, that, that Peter is reluctant because he's being asked to break God's law. And when you understand it that way, when you understand that, that Peter is being asked to break God's law, you can understand his confusion. You can understand his his hesitancy. You can understand why he is perplexed. Even more so when it is repeated again and again. God says to him again and again, do not call anything unclean that I have declared clean. Come on, Peter. Rise, kill, and eat. In other words, this sheet is a test. But it's not a test in the way that Peter was probably thinking. The question is not whether Peter will eat anything unclean. The, the, Peter, the, the test is whether he will allow God to tell him what is clean. The test is whether he will allow God to be God. The test is whether he will allow God to define for him holiness. Will he honor God as God by eating in the same way that he used to honor God as God by not eating. So yes, God is saying that all animals are clean, just as actually Jesus said in, uh, during his earthly ministry. Jesus is the one who said, it's not what goes into your mouth, but what comes out of your mouth uh, that makes you unclean. It's the overflow of your heart that reveals your, your cleanliness before uh, God. And now God is driving that point home for Peter. But to, to fully understand the significance of that, we, we need to understand the answer to at least two questions. Why is it so significant that God is now declaring all foods clean? Well, to understand that, you have to understand first why God declared some foods unclean in the first place. What were the Old Testament food laws all about? As I said, they were given by God. These, this is part of God's law. But the command not to eat bacon seems a little arbitrary compared to the command not to murder. You know, why are those laws part of the same code for the Old Testament people of God? Some people have suggested that it had something to do with health concerns, that it wasn't sanitary to, to eat these foods in, in that particular environment. I don't think that has anything to do with it. This is not health concerns. These are holiness concerns. This is the holiness code, and the food laws together with, with really the entire holiness code, all of the codes about what you can wear and, 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 and what you can eat and where you can walk, all of those holiness codes taught the people of Israel something important, really three important lessons about holiness. First, it, it taught them that, that holiness was absolutely necessary. You could not be in the presence of God and not be holy. You had to guard your holiness. You had to guard your purity. You had to, to guard your, your cleanliness. Because remember what we saw a few weeks ago. A, a sinner can no, no more live in the presence of a holy God than, than a person can dwell on the surface of the sun. If we are going to dwell with God, if we are going to dwell in God's presence, we need to be holy. And second, that holiness needs to be comprehensive. It has to 
cover every area of our lives. We're, we're familiar with Paul saying, whatever you eat or whatever you drink, do it to the glory of God. Well, in some sense, that's an Old Testament idea. It's the same thing that the holiness codes taught the, the people of Israel. The clothes that you wear, the food that you eat, everything about you must be devoted to the glory of your God. Everything uh, is about holiness. Every area of your life is to be set apart to his service and for the glory of his name. And so holiness is, is necessary and holiness is, is comprehensive. But those laws also taught us that holiness is defined by God. Holiness is, is not whatever we imagine holiness to be. Holiness is not whatever we decide to do to honor God. Holiness is what God has told us we must do to abide in his presence. It's like Sam was saying about the wedding. The, the bride and the groom set the terms. They set the, the dress code. God defines holiness. Holiness is determined by conformity and submission to his word. Now again, don't, don't misunderstand what these holiness codes are, are teaching. The Old, people, the Old Testament people of God didn't have to earn their salvation any more than, than we do. They were, were saved by grace just as we are today. They were justified by faith. Just think of Abraham. He believed God and it was counted to him as, as righteousness. These holiness codes are not teaching the people that they have to earn God's favor or, or earn his salvation. But as James says in the New Testament, it was true in the Old Testament, faith must work. That's why he points to Abraham and says, Abraham, the Abraham who was justified by faith, his faith expressed itself in obedience. And all true faith, all living faith must do the same. Faith must walk in the footsteps of faith. Faith must express itself in faithfulness. A faith that does not work is a dead faith. And if you think that's just James, recognize Paul said the same thing. He says what counts is not circumcision or uncircumcision, but what counts is faith. But what kind of faith? A faith that expresses itself in love. A faith that expresses itself in the fulfillment of the law. Because that's what love is. Faith must express itself in faithfulness. And so these holiness codes, these, uh, these, these food laws in particular, they teach us the importance and the, the extent and the standard of holiness. The holiness that is, that is necessary for us to abide with God. They teach us that, that this holiness is, is absolutely essential. That it, that it must cover every area of our lives. And that it must be according to God's standard. The question then, why? If, if that's what the holiness codes were about, if that's what the holiness codes were, were teaching the Old Testament people of God, then, then why are they now being set aside? Why is God now declaring all foods well, again, understand, it's not because holiness no longer matters. It's not because in the Old Testament that, that, that hard-nosed God was concerned about holiness, but now it's all grace. That's not why the food laws are being set aside. It's not because holiness no longer matters. The gospel is for sinners, yes, 
we'll end our service this, this morning singing, Come ye sinners, poor and wretched. The, the sinners are invited to come to Christ. The only fitness that he requires is that you know yourself to be a sinner, that you know your need of him. That is a, a true and, and glorious uh, point of the gospel that we must defend vigorously. The gospel is for sinners, but recognize that, that, the, that salvation is for the sinners who come. Salvation is for the sinners who repent. Salvation is for the sinners who, who turn from their sins back to God with what? With the full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. Repentance doesn't earn our salvation. But there is no salvation without repentance. As the author of Hebrews says, we simply cannot go on sinning deliberately. We cannot use our, our freedom, Paul says, as a, as a license to indulge our flesh. We do not have to earn our salvation. We are justified by, by faith alone, but faith expresses itself in faithfulness. Faith endeavors after new obedience. And so we must not think that, that God is setting aside the food laws because he no longer cares about holiness, because, because now it's all grace. It was always grace, and holiness always mattered. What then is going on? Why is God now declaring all foods clean? I think we have to see that the holiness codes are being set aside because they were always provisional. They were always only a foreshadow of what was necessary. The, the food laws were, were only a picture of the holiness that God requires of his people. The holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The holiness that God desires, the holiness that God demands of his people is not a matter of externals, but of the heart. Yes, Jesus said that. But the Old Testament prophets said it too. The, the Old Testament prophets uh, rebuked the people of God for, for worshiping with their lips, for going through the motions with their bodies while their hearts remained far from Him. And Moses himself said that, that, this ex, that this external circumcision of the flesh must be a picture of the circumcision of your hearts. Without the circumcision of the heart, the circumcision of the body is without significance. And so when these holiness codes that were, that were a picture of what was needed, a, a sign pointing forward to the, to the holiness that God required, when they had served their purpose, they were set aside. When they had served their purpose, they, they were no longer used. They're like the training wheels on a bike that are, that are teaching you how to keep your balance, teaching you how to ride. Once you know how to ride, you, you take off the training wheels. You don't need them anymore. And that's what the food laws were. They were there to, to teach the Israelites how to ride the bike of holiness. But when they had served their purpose, they were removed. So the question is, when had they served their purpose? They had served their purpose when Jesus came, just as the Old Testament sacrifices were fulfilled in Christ, just as the, the sacrifice of the, of the bulls and the, and the goats pointed to the, the true sacrifice that would be needed to atone for our sins and to, and to reconcile us to God, and just as those sacrifices were set aside when Jesus, the true Lamb of God, finally came and offered himself up once and for all time, just as the sacrificial system was set aside when it was fulfilled, so too were the food laws and all of the holiness 
code set aside when they had been fulfilled. You see, what, Pete, what God is teaching Peter by, by declaring all foods clean is not just that, that he can now experience a wider diet, but rather what he is teaching him is that holiness is now defined by your relationship to the Messiah. Holiness is now defined by your relationship to your one true king. Holiness is now defined in Jesus Christ. And so the holiness codes generally, and the, and the food, food laws in particular, were not abolished. They were fulfilled. Fulfilled in Christ. They ser- served their purpose, and then they were set aside. And the whole point of that is to teach us that the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles, that, that dividing wall, which was the, uh, the, 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 the ceremonial law, the ceremonial law that, that set Jews apart externally, that that dividing wall is no longer necessary. It has now been removed, even torn down, Paul says, in Christ. So that Gentiles do not have to become Jews. It's not that they don't have to repent. They do. There is no salvation without repentance. There is no salvation without turning from your sin to God with the full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. There there is no salvation without without submission to your king. That's what it is to believe on him, is is to receive and to rest upon him as your Lord and your Savior. But you do not have to become a Jew. You don't have to eat kosher. You don't have to keep certain holy days. You you don't have to be circumcised in the flesh. All these things were shadows, signs pointing forward to Christ. But now that Christ has come, these things are no longer necessary. They have been set aside because all that is required is faith in Him. Yes, faith must work. Yes, faith must express itself in love. And it's always been this way. Think of God, again, saying to the Old Testament people of God, listen, don't worship me with your lips while your hearts are far from me. Yes, faith must be faithful. But faithfulness no longer requires submission to the ceremonial law. Faithfulness now requires submission to Christ. Will you deny yourself to follow him. If you will, you can come. No matter what you've done, no matter your, your past, no matter your, your history, if you are uh, uh, the, the worst of sinners, you are invited to come to Christ and to rest on him and to let his blood cover your sins. You do not have to become a Jew. Gentiles can remain Gentiles. All that is required is that you honor God as God by receiving His Son, by bowing to Him as your true and rightful King. That's what was true in in Peter's day, and that is what is still true today. All that is required is faith. That's the significance of of Peter's vision. It's why God follows it up with a command to, to go with these men and to preach to them the gospel, which we'll see Peter do next week with, without hesitation. But the point is this. The point that, that God is driving home by declaring all foods clean is that all who come will be saved. 
Any and all who call upon him will be received. Any and all who believe will have eternal life. That's the message of Peter's vision. And because salvation is in Christ alone, by faith alone, for any and all who believe, including you and including me, that is one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Let's believe it together. Father God, we thank you for this vision. We, we acknowledge, Father, that the food laws sometimes perplex us, even as Peter was perplexed. But, Father, we thank you that, that in these strange laws, you are teaching us not only the importance of holiness, but, Father, that you are pointing us to your Son as our holiness. That if we will receive and rest upon him, we will be sanctified. If we will receive and rest upon him, we will be declared righteous in your sight. If we will receive and rest upon him, we will be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before you on that day. Father God, thank you for this gospel. Help us to believe it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.